Good morning, precious friends. I want to talk to you today about the Bible. In fact, I want to begin a short series on the Bible. What is it? What does it say? Why do I need to study it? So let's see if we can wrap our minds today around what it is. What is the Bible? The Bible is composed of 66 separate books. It was written over a period of between 1,400 and 1,800 years by more than 40 authors, long-term, from various walks of life. Many of the authors are identified, but some are unknown. And we can see from just that small amount of information that most of them didn't know each other, and they couldn't know each other. They couldn't have meetings so that they could decide what they were going to say. They couldn't get together and concur about what they were going to tell. And yet understand that over 40 different authors wrote 66 separate books over a time span of almost 2,000 years, and there are no contradictions in what they wrote. That alone gives validity to the Bible. How did they do that? Well, the Bible tells us how it was written. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21 tells us that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The word moved means to carry. Uh, Luke used the word regarding a sailing ship carried by the wind. And these human writers certainly use their own minds, their own language, their own words, but the Holy Spirit carried them along in their thinking. Let's pair this with 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 that says, All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is inspired by God. Not part of it. All Scripture. Now, the Greek word for inspired uh, literally means God-breathed. God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. Every word of the Bible, even the begets, if you know what I'm talking about in the Old Testament, that are so boring and hard to read. Every one of those words of the Bible is God-breathed. The Bible doesn't merely contain words of the God. The Bible is the Word of God. The original Greek word for inspired is only used one time in the New Testament. Inspired in our language is one word made out of two words. And so the two words from the original language are God-breathed. So all Scripture is God-breathed. Every word of Scripture is God breathed. God did not breathe into all of Scripture. God didn't let the men write something and then He breathed into it. He breathed it out. All Scripture was breathed out by God. The Holy Spirit continually carried along and continually guided. Those words are in the present tense, which means it continued to happen. He continued continually carried along and continually guided these men as they wrote God's word. God used humans, but humans are not the source of the word of God. The Holy Spirit 
through them wrote God's flawless word. We don't know what they felt. Um, we don't know how they did it. We don't know what they experienced. We just know that God breathed out his word, carrying the writer's words along by the spirit so that what they wrote down was the word of God. They accurately recorded all God wanted them to say, and they wrote it exactly how he wanted them to say it. The Bible is a sure word. It is a sure word. The apostle Paul confirmed this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13 when he wrote, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. In the beginning, writing was done on stone, um, clay tablets, animal skins, and papyrus. These original writings, when the writers of Scripture wrote it down for the very first time, the very first copy, those things are called autographs. I don't know why they're called that. That word in my vernacular just doesn't fit, but that's what they're called. The original manuscripts are called autographs. And since these inspired words are God-breathed, they're going to be without error because God is flawless. God is without error. God is perfect. He cannot lie, and he did not breathe out any errors or contradictions when he breathed out his word through these men. These original writings or autographs then are infallible and inerrant. In other words, there are no errors. There are no errors. Infallible means there are no errors. Historians tell us that these original copies were probably written on papyrus. Papyrus is made from the inner bark of a reed plant, and they would form it into a paper-like material which um, was glued together and kind of rolled into a scroll. And Normally, they would write on only one side of the scroll, and as it was read, it was unrolled with one hand and rolled up with the other. They had this special cylindrical box that they kept them in. And so historians also tell us that when these original autographs or these original manuscripts were copied, the Jews insisted that they were to be copied only on the skins of animals that God had deemed as clean animals. They would be animals like sheep and calves and goats. And they would dry their animal skins and it was costly, but much more durable and permanent than the papyrus. Eventually, they made folded sheets, and they would stitch them together, kind of like a book. So ultimately, the scrolls were, many of the scrolls were replaced by what was called the codex or the codices. Copies were made of the original autographs, the original manuscripts of the Old Testament, and copies were transcribed by hand under the very strictest measures. The men who copied the manuscripts were called scribes. And if one error 
one error was found even toward the end of the document, they threw the whole thing out, threw it away. And so they would destroy the entire copy and start over again. The accuracy of the copies is phenomenal. We can look back in history today. We can look in museums. We can look at some of our archaeologists. We can look at some of our historians and understand that the accuracy of these copies is confirmed in a number of ways. There are multiple numbers of copies in existence that have been compared to one another. And you may have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found uh, I'm thinking back in the early 1940s. That may not be right. Don't hold me to that. But they were buried in caves near the Dead Sea, and they were nearly original copies. And so there was the Isaiah scroll. There were other pieces of scripture so that historians and experts could take those Dead Sea scrolls and compare them to other copies that we have and see that they are incredibly accurate incredibly accurate. Um, there are more than 5,000 ancient Greek copies of either all or portions of the New Testament. Uh, and although there may be minimal variances, just tiny things in the manuscripts, none of the inconsistencies have anything to do with doctrinal issues. The Bible is divided into the Old Testament, the Old Testament is comprised of 39 books. And then there is the New Testament, which is comprised of 27 books. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. It was translated into common Greek. Now, common Greek was called Koine Greek. So they took the Hebrew and Aramaic Old Testament, translated it into Greek around 250 to 150 BC. And that translation from Hebrew and Aramaic to Greek is called the Septuagint, the Septuagint. What's happening through the years is you'll see as we go through this is God is getting the Bible into the language of the people that they could read it, that they could understand it. Uh, the majority of the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, even though some of it was in Aramaic. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek or Common Greek. It is fascinating to think about why God chose those two languages. We who just speak English are accustomed to our language and to the semantics, to the meanings, um, and to the, the culture almost of, of our words. But the Hebrew and the Greek languages are so, so very rich. Take the word love, for example. We use the word love in English for a lot of different things. I can love my dog. I can love food. I can love this. And we use that same word for love, even when we're talking about our love for God or God's love for us. But in the Greek language, there are three different words that we just translate love. And so the Hebrew language is like that. It's rich. It paints pictures. And so um, the Koine Greek language was the popular language that was used throughout the world in the times of Jesus, when Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ was on earth. And so you're going to find, if, you, if we could read it in the original language, we could find some Aramaic phrases in the New Testament. And um, since that was... 
the vernacular of, of the people of Israel. Jesus and his disciples spoke both Greek and Aramaic. And so if we could read the original language, we could see them sometimes using one, sometimes using the other. The Hebrew Aramaic copies of the autographs, the original manuscripts of the 66 books of the Bible are the basis for the translations that we have today uh, for the various languages into the various languages of the world. Uh, a translator will study the original words of the autographs and they will determine what these words mean and then select the best way to faithfully and accurately transmit the meaning from the original language to whatever language he's translating it into. Um, they have to consider the context of the words. And so they have to, to take this, this rich Hebrew language or rich Greek language, and then they, they translate it as best they can from that original language to another language. That is called a primary translation, a primary translation. But let's think about a secondary translation. A, second, a secondary translation occurs when a translation is made from a primary translation. So um, let's just say that someone translates the original Hebrew or Greek into English, and then someone takes that English translation and translates it into Italian or Spanish or Portuguese. That would be a secondary translation. So it's gotten passed through a couple of hands to get to that translation. The original writings, the original manuscripts, when those guys wrote down what God said, that is without error. It is without error. It is true, however, that sometimes we can lose some meaning in those translations. When we take somebody's opinion for what the Hebrew word means or what the Greek word means, and they begin to translate, then sometimes we can lose some of the meaning. And this is why we have to study the Bible so very carefully. There are study tools that make us able to compare words in our translation with the original words. That's what I do a lot. I have books, I have study tools that I can look at my English translation of the Bible, but then I can take a word and go back and compare it to what scholars say that original Hebrew word or Aramaic word or Greek word really means. And so then I can make a list of synonyms of what it could be compared to what maybe a translation said that it was. Um, there are some translations that are more accurate than others. So we need to be on the lookout. And of course, as, as best we can, we want to get a primary translation of Scripture, one that has come directly from the original language as best it can, instead of getting a secondary translation, which would just take one language and trans, translate it into another language. On the market today, there are also paraphrases of Scripture. And that's when somebody takes a translation and puts it into his own words. He makes it conversational or just writes it um, as if he were speaking, using the translation as a basis for what he's saying. They're sometimes interesting to read. 
there are sometimes beautiful words and beautiful thoughts there. And, and I like to read them. But when I study, I want to get as close to God's original words as I can get, no matter how many study tools I have to use because I don't read Hebrew. I don't know Aramaic. I don't know Greek. I would love to, but I'm so grateful for the study tools that are available that let us go back and see what did it say in the original language. Some people think that the old King James version of the Bible is the original Bible. It is not. It is not. It is a good translation of the original Greek and Hebrew. But if we want to go to the original, really the original, we've got to study and learn Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And we've got to know enough about their cultures to know the context of what they're saying. You know, context always rules when we are studying scripture. Um, good example of that is let's take the word trunk. If I just said to you trunk and ask you to tell me the first thing that comes to your mind when I said, what is trunk? Well, there would be trunk of a car. There could be the trunk of a tree. There could be the trunk of an elephant. All three trunk, but very different meanings. And that's why we have to go back and study. So um, I, it just excites me to see all of this that has transpired to get the Bible into our hands and to get tools into our hands. And God has ordained and rules, rules sovereignly over every bit of that so that we can study God's word and know what it says. Let's just take a side trip for a moment and think about Germany in 1440 AD. Now, there's some contradictions to this that people want to say, but as far as I know, a man named Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press. Now, some say that another printing press was invented in China before that. I don't know, but I want to talk to you about the Gutenberg Bible. Um, Gutenberg invented the printing press, and that started the printing revolution. And the mass production of a uniform matter, of a uniform page, of a uniform writing became available to everybody. Because before, if you needed a copy, and, and I have read that if you were a king, if God put you in a position of king in Israel, you, he had to write his own copy of all of the scrolls, word by word, did his own writing. Now, that's what people had to do. How long would it take you to sit down and write what we have in the Bible? But that's what they were having to do. But, oh, then Gutenberg came along with the printing press that changed the world. And the Gutenberg Bible was among one of the earliest books. It was the first major book to be printed. So um, with mass production of the Bible uh, became all of this accessibility to getting God's word to a wider population. But still there was a problem because the Gutenberg Bible was in Latin. I can't read Latin. Um, it's interesting to look at it. Um, the production of the Gutenberg Bible, and they call it the Gutenberg Bible just because they printed it on the Gutenberg Press, um, it ranks as one of the landmarks uh, in the history of civilization. One copy of an original Gutenberg Bible is on display in the Library of Congress 
in Washington. And because it's written in Latin, it's not that available to that many people. So watch what God has done through the ages because the Bible, even in those days when it was not in many languages and they couldn't copy very fast, the Bible is the most widely read book of all time. It remains the all-time bestseller, year after year after year. It is the bestseller. It, it's held this position, I've read, since it was first printed. So the Bible is a big deal. And it is fascinating to study, to read the history of how we got our Bible, to see the watch care of God over his word and how it was placed in the hands of common people so that you could read your own Bible, you could study your own Bible without having to go through a priest or an interpreter. It's stunning to observe God's protection of his word throughout the ages, ever since those first original autographs, when God was breathing out his word to men who were writing it down. You know, some people have tried to burn the Bible. There are people that have tried to eliminate the Bible from the face of the earth. Some have tried to burn it. Some tried to get it off the earth. Some, some criticize it. Uh, some hate it. Some ignore it. But the Bible, this book right here, is God's inspired, infallible, inerrant word. Inspired, infallible, inerrant word. It is the Holy Bible. It is the only Bible that God wrote. And it is holy and true, and the living God wrote it. This is His word. The Bible is what God said, what God said. It's interesting to know what people say, but it's mighty valuable and important to know what God said. What does God say? He used people to write the words down, but this book is what God says. Now, why should I believe that? It's what the Bible says of itself. Um, what evidence is there that the Bible is true? Well, we could spend weeks on this, but just let me give you a quick rundown and encourage you to do some research on your own about the evidences out there that the Bible is true. First of all, there's physical evidence. Uh, scholars tell us that New Testament records are incredibly accurate. And there are some, again, minor variants when you get into the translations, but none of them impact or change Christian key beliefs or claims at all. There's no effect. There's such minimal changes, differences, that they don't matter. Then archaeology has proven again and again and again that the Bible responds to historical reality. Even today, you can go online and read. You know, people would read things that the Bible said or things God said would happen or about walls in Jerusalem and all of these different things. And there were some unbelievers that would look at it and say, nope, that didn't happen. But over and over again today, archaeologists are finding in their archaeological digs, they're finding things that say, uh-oh, you know what? That's what that said. That's right. And so it's confirming the Bible over and over again. There's 
archeological evidence to prove that what the Bible has said is true. There is an internal consistency and coherence in the scripture that is evidence of its validity. Even though, again, the Bible was written over many centuries by different writers, the messages are always the same. It's consistent from cover to cover. One of the most exciting evidences is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. All through scripture, things were written centuries before that God said, this is going to happen and this is going to last this many years and this is going to happen and this person's gonna do this or that or other and they wouldn't even be born yet. And so once we can look back in history now and see every one of those things being fulfilled. Not all biblical prophecies have been fulfilled yet, but most of them have, a whole lot of them have. And so um, it, it, it's fascinating. It's such a fascinating, rich area of study to see that there are specific people and times and places and events that were written long before that happened. And we can look back in the history and match it up with the word of God, with what God said would, would happen long before it ever did. So we have the confirmation of prophecy. Let me just encourage you that there are many, many, many good and specific reasons to trust the Bible. But the bottom line is, it's a matter of faith. It's a matter of faith. You know, the Holy Spirit is ready and willing to provide us with the assurance and the conviction that we need to be sure about the Word of God. And if you will get into this with the Lord, if you will go to God with your questions, if you will become a true seeker, then God will confirm it to you. He will show it to you. It's interesting to read of people through the years who set out to prove that the Bible was not true. And in the process of trying to prove that the Bible was not true, they proved that it was true and they became believers. They became saved. Over and over again, it happens. And then a lot of those people in our culture, they've gone on to write books about it. And so all of the information is out there for you to read it. But the Holy Spirit is ready and willing to show us. And so if you have doubts about it and really, really want to know the truth, ask him, ask him. And so the truth is that in spite of all of the overwhelming um, evidence of the validity of scripture, People still just sometimes just don't want to believe it. Evidence doesn't matter to them. Truth doesn't matter to them. You know, there are just some people that are going to believe what they want to believe, whether it makes any sense or not. And so we have to understand that the Bible is a supernatural book. It's a supernatural book. The Bible is different from all other books that have ever, ever been written. The nature of the Bible is that it is infallible and inerrant. Now, I want to just, let's be sure that we understand what those words really mean. The word infallible means trustworthy. It means trustworthy. It means reliable. It means without any type of defect whatsoever. Infallible. 
Inerrancy means there are no errors whatsoever, whatsoever. No errors whatsoever. And the Bible does not have any errors. There are no errors of fact. There are no errors about science. There are no errors about history. It's just that we haven't seen it yet, maybe, but there are no errors. It is inerrant. And they are not, the information we have here is not contradictory. Now, I remember a time in my life when I would read the Bible, young person in college, and I think that the Bible had inconsistencies, that one verse would contradict another verse in another place. And I set out to determine for me if that was so or not. And the problem wasn't the Bible. The problem was my understanding. So when I went back and studied context and did the comparisons, I came to the same conclusion for me. There are no inconsistencies here. There aren't any. You've got to understand the context, understand the words, and know how they were written so that we can know. So the difference in infallibility and inerrancy, the only thing I can find, figure out, is that infallibility is a broader term. It has to do with um, the whole picture. Inerrancy has to do more with detail. And so we usually use those two words interchangeably. But, you know, God's word as he gave it was perfect. That's not to say that every translation we have today is perfect. But when God gave his word, it was perfect and it was without any error. We know from historical research that there are very few and very minimal problems with most translations. So we can feel secure when we read our English translations and with the Bible being handed down from one generation to the next generation with great accuracy. We can be comfortable with that. So when we're speaking with God's word, we're, these are words that we can use to describe it. We can say that God's word is inspired, God breathed, infallible, inerrant. And so I want to stand before you today and say to you, this is God's inspired, infallible, inerrant word to us right here. It's a gift from God to us. Um, there are other words we can use to describe God's word. We can call it a precious treasure, a precious treasure. It is indeed that. It is God's word to us, and it tells us about who we are and who he is. The Bible is a map and a guidebook. It gives us instruction about how to live and how to get to heaven. And it gives, gives us God's message of salvation. One of the sad things, I'm guilty. Did you ever get a new microphone, uh, microphone, micro, microwave oven or a new telephone or any of those things? And they all come with these little instruction booklets. Well, if you're like me, you're going to try to figure it out before you ever read the book, right? I'm guilty. But this is an instruction manual that we need to read first. We don't need to try to figure it out and then go back to this. God will accept that, but we surely miss a lot if we take that approach. So we can call the Bible an instruction manual because it tells us how we work. It tells us how we as people, how do we function? How do we work? How are we put together? It tells us 
the conditions under which we work best. And this is what God is saying to us. Look, I built you to operate in this set of circumstances, and this is where you'll operate best. And so when I decide I want to do that, then I'm out here and I'm floundering and flopping around, and I'm not on target. God says, this is the way. Walk ye in it. There are words in God's word that tell us about it. Luke chapter 8 and verse 11 tells us that God's word is a seed. And when that seed is planted into our hearts, it bears spiritual fruit. It's buried into the soil of our hearts and God's going to nurture it and grow it. And it's going to cause us to to bear, to begin to behave the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's going to be peace, love, joy, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. All of those things are going to show up in us because of the word being planted in our hearts. Psalm 119 and verse 105 calls God's word a lamp and a light. A light makes the path ahead clear. When we get up in the night, we turn the light on so that we can see where we're going, so that we can see how we get there. A lamp reveals the condition of the ground on which one walks. That's the context when the Bible says that the Word of God is a lamp unto our feet. And a long time ago, um, people didn't have flashlights, of course, and so there were little lamps, foot lamps, that they could attach to their feet. They were fire. There was some kind of candle, I guess. And they would attach them to their feet. And when it was really dark, they could only see as far as the next step. And so they would have to keep walking in order to keep seeing what was in front of them. And so to see farther, they just had to walk. And sometimes that's what we have to do with God's Word. Just take the next step. And then the next step. And then the next step, because most often in the Word of God and in our lives, we're not going to be able to stand here and look way down the pathway to see what's coming all the way down there, one step at a time. Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 29 says that God's Word is like fire and a hammer. Um, Our impurities are burned away by the Word of God, by the power of the Word of God. God uses His Word to deal with our hard hearts. This this book is alive and well. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and Ephesians 6, 17 describe God's Word as a sword. Now, mind you, I'm going quickly over all of this. We could spend lots of time on each one of these, but think with me. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, let me just read it to you out of the Bible. For the Word of God, the total, the logos, the total embodiment of the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The King James Bible says, for the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Quick, the Word of God is quick, means alive or living. 
Did you ever um, maybe cut a hangnail in what we call in the quick? Cut it in the quick and then what? You know, you feel it, it's alive, you notice it, it's quick. So it means alive or living. Powerful means energizing. The word of God will give us energy. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Now that's kind of an interesting picture and it's an interesting thing to think about. Um, there are four different words, four or five different words for swords in the Greek language. Uh, they had all kinds of swords. They had big, heavy swords that you'd have to use both arms to use. And then they'd have swords that were too heavy or swords that were dull on the end. Most all of the swords, though, were only sharp on one side. So if you didn't have it going right, you weren't going to cut anything. This particular sword that is referred to here, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing this right, but I think it's Machaira, Machaira. And it's, it's a very short sword that was one of the greatest inventions of the ancient world. It was more ingenious than anything else the world had known. And the Romans were the first to use it. And what they did was they made this short sword. It was light, it was not heavy. It, it, it was short and it was maneuverable and it was so much easier to use, quicker to use than those big old long swords uh, that were heavy. The big swords that were long and heavy would make the user get off balance. Sometimes he'd fall down trying to use that big, long, heavy sword. And so this new little short sword, short sword here, was easy to use, and it wasn't going to get you off balance. It didn't make you vulnerable. It not only had a very sharp point, but unlike the other swords, it was sharp on both sides. Both of the edges were very sharp, and so um, those were features that, for whatever reason, nobody ever thought of before, way back then. And so um, what does that tell us about God's Word? It tells us that God's word is accessible, that we can use it both offensively and defensively, that we can trust it not to get us off balance. It's alive. It's quick. Uh, it's, it's helpful to my life. It's as exciting or more so than that two-edged sword was to those people in that day. This is the Bible. This is God's holy word. Say it again. God's holy word. It is living. It is powerful. It is inspired, infallible, and inerrant. This is God's word to us. It is a spring of the purest water that is just waiting to quench any spiritual thirst that you may have in your life. The real purpose of God's word is to let us know God. God wrote this book to reveal himself to us, to tell us all about himself. And in the process of telling us about himself, he's telling us about us, how he created us, what we're meant to be. And so this book teaches us how to walk with God, how to recognize God's voice, how to hear his voice, how to have that 
one-on-one personal relationship with him. It is God's tool to lead us to him. And it just thrills my heart when I think how many years ago he gave that first word and how he has guarded that word and continued to get it to more and more and more and more people throughout the world. You know, there are countries in the world that won't let the Bible in. There are people all over the world begging for a copy of the word, but it's against the government to let it in there. We are very fortunate here in America. Most of us have multiple copies in our homes and we don't pay much attention to it. Join with me in these days to understand what it is to have God's tool at our fingertips in our own language. The Wycliffe Bible translators are all over the world trying to translate the Bible into languages of these remote cultures that don't have a Bible in their own language. Can you imagine if you and I wanted to read a Bible and all we had was a Latin copy? So God is at work in the world, continuing to use people, to continuing to inspire, to continuing to anoint, to get his word throughout the world to everyone and to make it available to everyone so that everybody can know God. The Bible is the supreme and final authority of faith and truth. One of Satan's real goals today is to make us think this is not true so that there is no standard. Look, this Bible is truth. It is the standard for truth. And whenever we're confronted with a situation, we need to ask the question, where is that written in the Bible? Because this is the standard. This is what's going to lead us. This is what's going to lead us to God. It's going to lead us to salvation, but it's our instruction manual on how to live, how we can get along in this world and live empowered, victorious lives. So understand in closing that these are God's words to mankind. It is much to your benefit to read it. It's food to the soul. You partake it, and when you do, you will find that it is sweeter than honey to eat. But we have to ingest it. I can't do that for you. You can't do it for anybody else. But it is available to you for you to do that. This is God's love letter. When I was growing up, grew up in a, in a church that had vacation Bible school. And we had pledges. First of all, we would say a pledge to the American flag, the flag of the United States of America. And then we would say a pledge to the Christian flag. And then we would say a pledge to the Bible. And I still remember it. I pledge allegiance to the Bible, God's holy word, and will make it a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path, and hide its words in my heart that I might not sin against God. It works for all of that. It's our love letter. It's to us from Him. Consider it a present. See, it is all wrapped up with a big, beautiful bow, and He says, this is from me to you. Take it, read it, ingest it. Next week, we're going to talk about what it says. And you can tune in and see if I can do it. But I'm going to try to cover the entire Old Testament 
in one lesson. Check it out. God bless you.